0: Hello, everyone. I'm Marco.
1: I'm Léa, and welcome to Post-It Talks. How are you, Marco?
0: Uh, I'm good. I'm good. Uh, A bit confused uh, from deep research, but I think we're going to find a way, the light. Talking about light and find a light in the real world, we have today Antonia. Hello, welcome.
2: Hey, guys. Welcome to the podcast. So tell us a little bit, who are you? Well, I'm very excited to be here. Thank you for having me. Well, I used to be a student at the school as well. Um, Now I'm a digital designer and I focus on sustainable and social design, especially within UI and UX. Um, I also do a lot of branding. I have my own design studio and I'm also part-time working here at the school, I think since a month now, to support um, the Planet Lab and Design for Planet um, to bring it more towards uh, sustainable digital spaces, which I think is quite important. Yeah, so I do that quite a lot. Work a lot for NGOs, for example, and for public companies.
0: Wow, amazing. And um, how did you build your network outside of school? Um,
2: I think I'm a naturally very, very curious person and I very much love to connect to people. I think that's helped me a lot. Um, I kind of slid into being self-employed and everything in general because um, I do all the design stuff for food reformers, NGO based in calling, you might know. And I've been working for an NGO um, based in Kenya for since 2017. So I think those two gave me a lot of contacts. And I also thoroughly join network events. I go to a lot of networking events in Germany, where I'm from, and also in Denmark, and try to build a network which really serves me with people that I can also serve so it's not just like how are you who are you working with or for but like truly like what are you interested and can we maybe support each other and uplift each other and I think that's helped a lot but it's a lot of it's a lot of work networking.
1: Uh, You work a lot with uh, accessible and sustainable digital design what does this mean?
2: So this kind of goes into two areas. Um, I mean, sustainability, as you know, is always like people, planet, profit. So I work both with accessibility and inclusion and also sustainable digital spaces. When we look at sustainable digital spaces, we look a lot at how do our digital is physical and how does that impact our environment? Uh, Can we lower the CO2 footprint? where does the data come from, where do the servers stand, Uh, everything energy consumption-wise, CO2 print, um, but also very like following the life-centered design approach, which is also including like humanity and life in general and other non-human beings as well. And accessibility and inclusion are really centered around users and people because design is never neutral and each of your design decisions truly enables or restricts the way in which people interact with technology and information. And accessible design really makes sure that everybody can access technology in the same way and that we don't exclude lots of people. Not including accessibility in your work really discriminates at least one billion people that are differently abled or disabled. So we're really discriminating against a lot of people and accessibility Concerns a lot um, of designing for neurodiversity, for example, um, for people who have vision impairments. So it's a lot about colors, contrast, fonts, language, the way in which we use language, specifically like easy versus hard language. uh, Yeah, stuff like that. Very
1: interesting. Uh, How do you think the digital world and the feminist design principles are coming together to influence the way we interact with technology? That's a long question, I'm sorry. But uh, because you work a lot with feminist design principles, maybe start with that, what is it?
2: I was really looking for design principles that feature or are based within my values. Um, And my values are very feminist values and sometimes like lots of... Like even professors I talked to didn't want me to mention the F word at any, (laughs) at any point. Um, But feminist design methodology is actually just holding yourself accountable for the work that you do. Holding yourself accountable and questioning, critically questioning, who are you serving and who are you restricting within your work? Who are you not including? Or who are you actually actively hurting with your work? Um, So feminist design, methodology, I found that through deep research, I think, because I was researching in a way and then was lost in a rabbit hole. And now I actually use it in my everyday work because it's really about design can't include everything or everyone. That's not possible, but we can question our deeply embedded assumptions. Like we all have bias and it's really hard to even identify these biases. It's even harder to implement that change, but feminist design ontology or methodology can really help you with that because it helps you find questions like who designs, who produces, who consumes with the explicit aim of addressing issues of gender privilege and oppression. So truly asking yourself are my biases or my not only biases because sometimes we don't know what a bias that we have a bias but Are my assumptions towards a user group or in general the type of work I'm doing, are those based on hard facts or are those based on like possibly like incomplete narratives, so to speak? Mm, And that's why I found
1: um, personas to be a very difficult and uh, restricting way of working when it comes to design. But a lot of times I feel like we still are pressured to go this kind of way.
2: Yeah, I have a very complicated relationship towards personas. Um, When I wrote my deep research paper about the persona method and how much it actually discriminates, there are so many hard facts and studies that actually show us how much they discriminate based on a very, very easy psychological phenomenon called the I methodology and the from their following like othering because designers tend to project their views and beliefs intentionally or not like on the world and into their work reproducing the norms that we have learned growing up and like the social beliefs that we've grown into that we're a part of and we project that on other people on groups that we're not belonging um, so a good colleague of mine, who's a senior designer at LEGO, she actually developed some methodologies on how to work with cultural biases specifically, which I think is very very helpful, especially when you work with a company like LEGO because there's so many people from different continents and from different cultures using your products. Being aware of that effect and that there are there are information, cultural premises, etc., that you're not going to be familiar with, and the simple reason. And the simple solution, of course, it's opening up an entire rabbit hole, is like diversifying design, diversifying user groups, user testing, the design teams, because inevitably design leadership is predominantly white, male, and Asian. And that is not very diverse. So like teams need to be diverse, leadership needs to be diverse. And actually, like if we wanna show or depict the reality that we live in, we have to invite this reality and diversity into our processes and real people. Um, So I think sometimes the persona method, we have to use it because also if we join the real world and our bosses want us to do that and people want us to use it, there are methods that we could use to make sure that we're not creating more harm than good while using the methodology.
0: I have a reflection on this. I don't want to be the dark side of the moon, but it's just, it's just a reflection that came out. Also, yesterday when I was reading the um, the question, the word like uh, feminist uh, design approach, it like bring bring the attention on me, particularly because how do we feel on labeling a category of people? I'm I'm very interested in universal design, and it's what I'm gonna do for my thesis. And I believe that universal design shouldn't label category of people or um, gender anything, but should just value the persona uh, in itself. So I'm not saying that I'm against what you you said. I I don't want to be misunderstood or wrong. Don't worry about that at all. (laughs) Um, Don't you think that saying that you are a feminist designer can even more exclude a feminist uh, approach like to uh, bring up some cultural change or something like that because i think when you label labeling something even more shed the light on a diversity
2: i really truly agree with you and it is a very double-sided sword because we also i mean we have different issues also with different aspects of feminism right like white feminism for example there is a lot of issues within that and i truly think that Maybe you guys know Tony Fry, like a really, uh, really famous design theorist. And he once said that, like, feminist design ontology needs to stay critical and flexible in theory, practice, and ethics to be able to respond towards an ever changing and ever evolving design way of futuring and defuturing. And I think questioning, like you're questioning right now, is really a big part of that. Because by simply asking these questions, you open up um, different perspectives that can be very valuable. There are spaces, specifically spaces in in the tech world and in lots of different business worlds where people are not going to want to hear these type of questions like can we label, can we not? Because the labeling part is very hardcore embedded within us. I agree with you that it probably shouldn't be. But the reality is we are all made of like different intersections. Like feminist design always means intersectional design. Social design has to be intersectional design. Otherwise it doesn't work. But these intersections mean that we are consistent of different labels. Because others are going to label us as well even if... We as one person decide not to use specific labels, which I'm very much for. And I really think that if we could work without labeling, that would be amazing. That would be so great. But I don't think we're there yet. But working towards that and starting, like you're starting with that, I think that is a great step to take. So I would really, really yeah, we'll encourage, just... you, encourage you on finding ways in not labeling. And mm. that's also why I don't like to say... That I work with feminist design methodology rather than talking more about the actual questions, the actual like hard things that we can do. Like, for example, yeah,
0: exactly, exactly. When
2: I start working for a project where I am not familiar with the target group or the users, I write down my assumptions. That's something I learned from Marina, for example. They write down their assumptions and then you work through them one by one. So you truly get into what are my Cultural or gender or ethnical assumptions here? And do I have like a ground there or do I really need to work on something? That's why I think at schools and education, for example, we really need to diversify the information that we're taking in, like, really have lots more books and media and consume more things that are written and spoken by not only like white people but by differently abled people, by POC, by queer people, etc. So consume, more diversified design is also decolonizing design, right?
1: Definitely. And I think that's uh, a very important part. Also as designers, students, trying to find these kind of resources from people who are not white, not men, mm-hmm. not cis, uh, these kind of, yeah, because... They are overflowing uh, when it comes to that. And then finding these kind of other resources. Is there like somewhere people can go and find this a bit more easily? Or is it just dive down, find it? Yeah, just try to find it somehow.
2: I started my own collection the past since I started freelancing. I started my own collection with uh, diverse design resources. I started putting them together already. I think I also started sharing them with the students. And I'm actually working on building like a little Figma library of the really great also open source resources I found. I think um, you have to do some deep times sometimes, but there is incredible websites of people that truly know what they're doing. And they're curating these websites really, really well. And there's books, there's podcasts, there's videos, there's all sorts of media types. Like ethical design resources is a great website I can recommend, for example, there's also a lot of sustainable resources. There's one designer that put together a Notion library. I don't know her name anymore, but I included it, I think, in the last like open source thing I created for the students because she actually put together an incredible amount, like topic by topic, on design books written by minorities, written by POC, Latinx people, and specifically focus on x and gender fluid people. Um, So there are a great ton of resources also for sustainable design, by the way, like the Green Web Foundation, for example, that really has a lot of great resources. And I think it's also important to like don't fall into the rabbit hole too hard, like try to start very one by one with easy steps that you can take uh, so that you don't feel overwhelmed. Because I think within ethical and sustainable issues, it's really, really easy to get overwhelmed very quickly.
0: Mm. and also like i think go out to the to the rail i was talking before with a possible collaborator for my master thesis and you know also talking about universal design it's super difficult when you want to put together a lot of things and you want to really until the end try to keep them all together because you know that they are the good things but i think during the process it's also nice to you know prioritize and maybe leave something back so i uh, it's it's really difficult sometimes, like put everything together and like keep everything and not make a mess.
2: Oh, yeah. And not like ending up in front of a huge whiteboard with a a thousand threads and you have no idea where you started or where you're going. It's very, very hard.
0: Create a Frankenstein, (laughs) uh, like, you know, put piece together of head. uh,
1: Yeah. So pulling it back to digital design and when it comes to digital spaces, a lot of them A lot of kind of concerns right now are maybe around AI, privacy, safety. How can kind of the feminist design approach or inclusive approach, accessible approach, make
2: sure that these groups feel included, respected, safe? I think machine bias right now is a huge concern. Um, I know a lot of great, like, for example, prompt engineers who are trying to work very much against biases, like Dolly for example is also now featuring an anti-bias mechanism but that has to be fed and sadly there is more people who feed AI with biases and huge stereotypes and there are people who are trying to counteract that like for example a a great like UX focused prompt engineer who works a lot with AI who I recently like last week was at a conference with he talked a lot about AI and Uh, what we can do with it and that it's so great, etc. And I was asking him specifically like, yeah, but what do you do against biases? Like, how do we make sure that the machine is actually depicting reality and not a whitewashed Barbie version of reality? And he told me a really fun story that he is trying to work with those AIs that are creating uh, deepfake porns, which is a really big concern. And he realized quite quickly that the AI had no idea that uh, cis men have penises because nobody, literally no one had bothered to tell mm. the artificial intelligence what a man has as genitalia, <laughs> <laughs> which is absolutely crazy. But that just that is a very like simple way of saying like we have to actively feed the AI. Because we we can't fight the system, we have to work within a system. So it's really it's really important to like meet meet it at the playground and really try to feed it with with diverse information because that's the only way how the AI is actually going to learn. And I think there is lots of people who do incredible work in trying to make sure that spaces are safe. And I think a lot of that has to do with uh, language and representation, visual representation, language and actively inviting people in those spaces as well. But yeah, visually, I think it's representation and language-wise, I think it has to be really accessible and easy and understandable for everyone.
1: What a great example. I think it's interesting to think about that you just assume that it knows, but it doesn't. No, if nobody told it.
0: (laughs) I was reading uh, an article that in the last two years, ChatGBT became more ignorant thanks to our feedback. Yeah. So basically... ChatGBT was super intelligent and then thanks to our feedback, they became more stupid <laughs> because our feedback were wrong and now he, he's a bit more stupid. <laughs> it was so fun.
2: There's so many examples on like LinkedIn, for example, of prompt engineers who really share their processes. Like, um, There's a Dutch prompt engineer who I follow on LinkedIn and she always posts hilarious examples. I mean, they they are hilarious in a very, very sad way of how she tries to get pictures and images and videos etc from an AI that are actually representing in the in quotation marks like a right way or in the diverse and like reality depicting way and the way that she's reaching those goals is hilarious sometimes like when you ask an AI like please depict a boardroom with 50% robots and 50% people specifically gender neutral and then The AI immediately starts showing 50% sex robots and 50% white men. I don't know who started that with putting that into AI. That when you say robot, it immediately jumps to sex robot. But I mean, it's all about education and putting in knowledge. (laughs) Feeding, feeding diverse and real knowledge. It's
0: actually like a kid. Yes, it is. You have to teach what's the right way to go. And it's up to us. At the and end, we do. grow
2: up with biases, right? Yeah. The way that we are raised and the social environments that we're in like embeds biases. And not only like in a bad way, we all have biases. That is a very natural thing. But um, AI is just like a kid. That's
1: exactly yeah. what you <laughs> say. Last week, we had some uh, PhD candidates from MIT visiting. And there was one, I can't remember his name right now. But he was doing AI music Mm -hmm. uh, and he said in this case, especially working with biases, he fed it biases on purpose, especially when it came to different instruments, different music genres, these kind of things to create what he wanted to create. So I think also biases have some certain purposes, for example, his when it comes to creating a very specific music, but definitely something to think about around AI and
2: inclusion. I think it's also really like if you just put it to the max, if you really, if you show people like this boardroom of sex robots and men, right? Yeah. It really, AI like holds a mirror in front of our face. Definitely, Without even us putting in like blatantly sexist or racist things, AI will show us blatantly racist or sexist things simply Mm. because of the overwhelming amount of information they have gathered on a specific group. So if we just put in something super neutral, something that we think is neutral anyways, and get something back that is super problematic from different aspects, then we can actually see like how deeply embedded those thoughts are. And AI is just putting them to the max and showing them to us. And I think that can actually be quite helpful because I think people can see how much problems we still have with yeah. racism, sexism, etc. All the bad isms yeah. that we don't want to depict. Yeah.
1: Definitely. So when it comes to feminist design principles and this kind of way of thinking, collaboration is a big part of it. Yes. How do you do this in an inclusive way? Of course, pulling in people a lot, but how do you collaborate well with people when it comes to these kind of topics?
2: I absolutely loved all the things that we learned about participatory design. I'm a huge advocate for participatory processes and inviting people, especially non-designers, into design processes. I think there have to be guidelines and standards that have to be set. Like for a, de- a design process, we have to have ethical standards and guidelines. And also for a collaboration, I think it's quite important that when you sit together in a room of people in a room of strangers and you're doing a workshop or whatever, we need to have kind of a manifest of how to behave in here. If we're talking about uh, very sensitive topics, for example, I think it's important to include a trigger warning or something like that because we sometimes think manners are something that people learn, but sometimes they're not. And they can also be very much culturally different. Mm. Um, So creating rules that everybody participated in and it's quite important to have some sort of guidelines. Okay, so we are actually out of time,
1: sadly. I think we could speak about this for many, many hours more. They're absolute <laughs> rabbit hole topics yeah. also. <laughs> <laughs> and it's so interesting. So thank you for coming on. We've forgot to do it the last few times. Sorry, guys. But uh, usually we would uh, ask you to summarize what we've been speaking about on a post-it note. So I'm going to give it to you now. And then you could draw or write some words, a sentence, or maybe some inspiration for people.
2: I think I would summarize it with question everything. Yeah. Because that can really help you. And questioning everything can help you explore different ways of being in design and actually being able to create empowerment and self-empowerment for yourself and for others.
1: Yeah, definitely. Well, thank you for coming. Thank, thank you so much, you so much for having lovely me. Talk. So what do you think, Marco?
0: That uh, it was super nice. Yeah. Should we post it? Yeah, let's post it. Bye.
1: Bye.